This episode of the Rise Up podcast features two guests from Clean Energy Works, a nonprofit working to accelerate investments in cost effective distributed energy solutions. Dr. Holmes Hummel is the founder of Clean Energy Works and a champion for the pay as you save system. Previously, Holmes served as the senior policy advisor in the Department of Energy's Office of Policy and International Affairs. Dr. Anthony Kinslow II leads Clean Energy Works' engagement efforts for realizing inclusive financing within California. Anthony is the founder of Gemini Energy Solutions, executive director of the Racial Equity in Energy Project, and is an adjunct lecturer at Stanford University. Nick and Amanda spoke with Holmes and Anthony about Pay As You Save, a tariffed on-bell program designed to make it easier for more utility customers to access efficiency upgrades. Holmes and Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Holmes, I've had the pleasure of following and being part of your work over the past few years. It is not an understatement to say that you are a knowledgeable and inspiring individual who is widely respected for your efforts. Uh, Anthony, we've only recently met as part of the NAACP Solar Equity Initiative, and it is apparent that you bring a lot of experience and energy to your work with homes and clean energy works. It seems to me that one of the tools that you've really developed and helped made recognizable and scalable is pay as you save. And uh, so, so maybe you can talk to us about that. And, and for me, I'm interested in this, this, you know, Dr. Tony Reams, who is at the University of Michigan, now is an advisor to the Department of Energy. He coined the term, I grew up in a donut shop, so I like this term, the donut hole. <laughs> uh, this, this, this hole that people fall into, usually these low to moderate income households that don't quite uh, qualify for energy assistance, but don't have the credit score or the capital or the financing availability uh, to move forward with investments that reduce their bills over the long term. And so maybe you both can help us understand pay as you save and how it, how it really fits into that donut hole. So I want to first say that Tony Reams is also a fellow Aggie, a North Carolina A&T grad. So um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so no one who is thinking about money in any real way from their medical bills to uh, the food to, you know, looking at <laughs> discounts in, in, uh, in the grocery store wants to take on another loan, right? And right now that is the pervasive solution available to anybody who is not meeting the federal low income limit. And so this idea of the donut hole is essentially the vast majority of individuals who uh, think about money on um, in a semi daily basis or a daily basis. Uh, and, and really, you know, asking them to take on a loan so that all of us can benefit from electrification or energy efficiency and the reduction of carbon emissions is, is not a is not an attractive thing. It's not a fair thing. And so, uh, when we think about the donut hole and where inclusive utility investment programs come in uh, and pay as you say specifically, it is an opportunity to provide um, cost-effective upgrades with a, with a tariff that doesn't, uh, isn't attached to the individual, right? So someone living in that location is paying less money, getting new equipment, and then if they wanna move, it doesn't go with them, right? It sticks to that bill. and so. Now, and all of a sudden, we have this situation where you're offering someone upgrades, more comfort, um, but also a lower energy bill. And you're saying that you don't have to worry about this after you leave this facility. And for people who move often, um, not everybody uh, 
buys a home and lives in that home, a lot of people rent. And when we think about equity, uh, more people of color, African-Americans, Hispanics rent than white Americans. So um, European Americans, we'll say, <laughs> if I'm gonna say African-Americans, European Americans, right? And so um, when we think about equity and, and, and this, the inequities that exist, uh, renting, uh, solving this renting issue where you're not expecting a renter to take out a loan on a place that they're going to be only there for six months. So in that context, how does pay as you save enter into this picture to to really address this this issue? Pay as you save is the trademark assigned to a body of work developed by the Energy Efficiency Institute, a small company in Vermont that over 20 years has developed a system of uh, documents, the tariff, a participant agreement, the agreement with contractors, uh, the architecture of an inclusive utility investment program with strong consumer protections. And the success of that company in introducing this concept in multiple states has led to the reference to its brand name, Pay As You Save, as a standard for consumer protection with expansive inclusion for a site-specific utility investment program. And that means that communities in states across the United States, when they find that they face climate action imperatives that require everyone to be in, there's no path to 100% clean energy with only half the people. So when they face that imperative with some degree of sobriety, they're looking for solutions that would have criteria, meet their criteria for everyone qualifies, we can get all cost-effective upgrades and every type of upgrade we need can be covered. And when pay-as-you-save data from the field has been circulated, we've seen that the utilities with experience are reporting excellent results compared to the debt-based alternatives that have been offered by the financial services sector. I wanna say a quick word about Anthony's remarks on cash on hand versus debt for a moment because Pay as you save as a trade name is really a response to two facts that are immutable. One, the Federal Reserve surveys consumers for their financial disposition every year and makes a major report every three years. And for more than a decade, more than a third of American adults have not been able to withstand a $400 emergency in cash. We're talking about upgrades that start at $4,000. And if you want to add your EV charger and your rooftop solar on top of that, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. So there isn't a way to achieve a level of popular support for the policies that are necessary to achieve 100% goals if a third of the adults know that they're categorically excluded by an upfront cost barrier that's beyond a threshold that the Federal Reserve already says is unattainable by personal testament of a third of American adults. If nothing else out of today's podcast sticks with the listeners, that is something we can't turn away from. And the next thing I wanted to put on the other hand is what's being offered out of the financial services sector in terms of consumer debt products. Because at the Department of Energy, we presided over unprecedented grant support to states and localities that were experimenting with a host of different types of loan programs, off-bill programs, on-bill programs, subsidized programs, credit enhancement programs. The most successful among them that still exist today, and by the way, that's few, most of them have been ended by now, but the most successful among them 
were evaluated by Lawrence Berkeley National Labs when a study that was produced this past summer showing us that at the very maximum, the peak success of any of the most successful ones were able to reach 0.1% of the eligible customers in that state at any point in any year. And that's over 10 years worth of data. So in maximum effort periods and sustained over a period of a decade since then, we were never able to crash through the 0.1% threshold by marketing consumer debt for the energy upgrades that we knew were cost-effective. Contrast that with data coming from utilities with experience making site-specific investments and offering their customers to capitalize it. They're getting 20 times that rate every single year. And they're able to reach people who would be categorically excluded from having access to a loan to begin with. These are the types of things that make us excited because we can see that it's making sense to more people in more places, that we look outside the financial services sector's retail products in order to capitalize retail level deployment and still tap the competitive capital markets at a wholesale level, bringing in large amounts of capital, exactly the things that we know we need. You're listening to the Rise Up Midwest podcast. We'll get back to the podcast after this short sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by the Couillard Solar Foundation. The Couillard Solar Foundation promotes the expansion of solar energy in Wisconsin through partnerships with renewable energy-focused Wisconsin-based organizations, including the Midwest Renewable Energy Association. Our mutual goal is to enable nonprofits across Wisconsin, schools, churches, service, and other community organizations to join the renewable energy revolution. Learn more at CouillardSolarFoundation.org. And now, back to the podcast. I'm wondering, you were, you've been talking about Pace here, um, and that's, that's a brand name um, product. Could you clarify and perhaps compare and contrast some of the different uh, mechanisms that are out there, such as Pace and then versus on-bill financing and uh, Pace financing? And what are the benefits specific to, to Pace? Um, yeah, so I'm going to first pay as you save or Pays and then Pace, uh, one, <laughs> right? Um, and I think we've been using the t- speaking it all out, pay as you save to kind of separate it so people don't hear pace when you say it. Uh, but uh, one of the fundamental aspects for me that, that the fundamental flaws uh, in pace is the fact that you have the contractors being the marketers, sellers, and implementers all in one. The power dynamics between a contractor and the person they're selling to is one where if a contractor is telling you something, you know, they're the expert. You you should probably, you probably believe them. And, and really, um, we've seen a lot of taking advantage of, um, especially in particular in uh, Southern California, there's a lot of that. And when you talk with the people who have to deal with this, right, we have to have to receive calls from people who are like, why am I at risk of losing my home? Now, all of a sudden, when I, I was just trying to get upgrades, the contractor told me this was covered, that would be all okay. They, they'll tell you that the people are usually minorities, right? And so it's, it's like a double hit of um, taking advantage of people. And then the, the aspects of the people who are taking advantage of are often the most vulnerable. And so when you think of pay as you save, where you have one group who is doing the analysis that says, hey, this is what we expect from savings. And you have another group that has no monetization connection to that first group is the one implementing it. 
you have this separation that allows for um, consumer protections and and uh, and really prevents someone from being able to go to them and and, uh, and use that power dynamic to their benefit. To to build off of your point earlier, though, Anthony, about how the different stakeholders engage in this uh, site specific investment and cost recovery that's facilitated by the utility. You know that we used to call it on-bill financing. That doesn't seem to apply or be assailable anymore. Um, mostly because you know utilities of all types, co-ops, munis, investor-owned utilities, they are designed to make investments and recover costs from future ratepayers. And the regulations that are passed by states and um, and enforced by regulatory bodies, they're there to make sure that there's no cross-subsidization and then you know consumers are protected. In this pay-as-you-save model, um, it seems to me that one of the challenges of the site-specific recovery is addressed by the model where you're really only allowed to do 80%, um, you're only allowed to count 80% of the potential uh, bill savings investments, and you're only allowed to, to finance 80% of the cost on the bill. And that keeps the utility honest and, and, you know, the utilities are doing the thing they always did. They're making an investment and getting, getting the recovery back, but now they're just doing it on this one bill. And so in some ways, you know, not all on bill financing programs are created equally, right. And pay as you save is there to, to guide the, to make this a, 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 a consumer protected investment. So I guess in that context, um, Knowing that there has to be a willing utility partner, knowing that you have to have a trained group of contractors, knowing you have to have an auditor, knowing you have to have a group like Clean Energy Works that's going to put all this, bake this pie with all these ingredients. Can you lay us out a program that you think really, you know, rings the bell for you that really is an exemplary program that, uh, that we should be looking at? And I guess how it came together. Oh, I definitely want to touch on the buffer aspect in on-bill financing versus uh, tariff on-bill or pay-as-you-save model. And I want homes to touch on like exemplary uh, utilities. But I'll say this, that my background, energy efficiency analytics, um, that buffer is necessary. Uh, quite frankly, behavior, even when you install energy efficient equipment, can result in increases depending on behavior and so having that buffer allows for that inevitable variance that occurs with human behavior right the other aspect of this is that even when it's one bill financing is still a loan right it is still attached to that individual that consumer so in california one bill financing is done in the commercial space and while it is a very attractive aspect of being zero percent on bill financing that is very attractive to business owners. And I can speak to this because I have a company that does this in, in California. It's very attractive when they hear 0% interest. It is still a loan aspect where they are personally responsible for paying that back as opposed to being on a property, which is also another key difference that I think people forget or, or have trouble wrapping their heads around. And, and the words you use in terms of how you communicate with people to separate debt versus a tariff have to be different. And we're, we're, we're always trying to be thoughtful about that in our communication. And, but I want homes to touch on 
who's been exemplary. I personally think um, Roanoke Electric Cooperatives um, doing some great things, um, but yeah. Well, Roanoke Electric is an extraordinary story by itself. Uh, and I think they are still telling that story. It is an electric cooperative, which is an energy democracy formed in the New Deal era of the Great Depression's Recovery Act, the New Deal. And uh, they have the only utility in the United States with a majority African-American service area that is also reflected in the composition of its board and the management team that's hired to implement their directional interests in investment as a local energy infrastructure company owned by the community it serves. And when I first met the management team at Roanoke Electric, they had already been trying for more than a decade with real fervent urgency to address the toll of the bills that they were sending to the households they serve. The average bill was more than $200 a month and the average income was less than $20,000 in some parts of their service area. They knew that these bills were causing sacrifice of health, nutrition, and just mental mental uh, fortitude when you're under distress. That is itself a kind of harm. So the management team at the utility had been trying everything that they'd heard of. They tried loans, they tried rebates, they tried financial literacy programs on Saturdays like voter registration schools from the 1960s. They tried everything they'd heard and could think of. And by the time that we sat down together in 2014, they knew enough about what wasn't working to be able to realize that what they heard was working in Kansas and Kentucky could be working for them too. They adopted the minimum requirements and essential elements of the pay-as-you-save system, which are posted freely available online. Anyone in the world with a web browser can get the minimum requirements and essential elements of that pay-as-you-save system. And they implemented it with a program operator who has brought them today modern software tools that improve the accuracy of their estimates for cost savings. And they have a measurement and verification process that they are exercising to make sure that their customers are in fact saving more than they pay, unless there is an explanation related to the ones that Anthony's just described, like changes in behavior that actually are common in areas that are affected by the deprivation that we observe when people shiver through the winter and swelter through the summer because they know the integrity of their own building shell is so low that it's just useless to try to raise the thermostat to a level that would be comforting. We've seen other utilities really be inspired by the Roanoke Electric success. If they can do this, we can do this, they say. And we believe that that's true. We believe also that the people of Illinois are perhaps next in line and perhaps after them, California. In both states, we've seen important rulings made in the last 12 months that put them on the course to have tariffed on-bill investment through inclusive utility investment programs within a year. These are some of the biggest markets in the United States. So we think that it's not precious. It's not unique. Roanoke Electric isn't doing something that other people can't or don't. It's just that they did have a turning page moment in 2015 and 16 when they got started. And we've seen things expand more rapidly ever since. Yeah, we, uh, we're watching the, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act. Um, I know that was like three years in the making and it was uh, astounding. We talked to John Delury from Vote Solar about you know a small portion as much as we could in 45 minutes about that legislation um, and seeing all the inclusivity and consumer protections that were included in it, among many other things. Uh, so it's definitely 
legislation that that was awe-inspiring from from being in Wisconsin, a little bit farther north there. Uh, I'm wondering what you both see as you know replicability of legislation like this, including those type of consumer protections. And then, kind of on that same note, you know, what are some of the biggest hurdles to climate policy and legislation in general? And then, also with a, a special focus on on energy equity. Well, I'll say a word about Illinois, both its uniqueness and its potential for being replicated. And, and Anthony's been working in Virginia, where there was a law that was passed by all Republicans and Democrats in a famously polarized state legislature that I think is also worth hearing about. So. In Illinois, the Equitable Energy Upgrade Program uh, is described as a default program that the utility commission can have the for-profit utilities implement, or the utility commission can come up with something better and different. And I'm interested in seeing how far that's going to go as it's being uh, adopted by other state legislatures. We've been called by advocates in multiple states wondering whether they should introduce similar legislation, and I think it's worth a look. Um, We also know that there are other ways to go about introducing the concept, and it's not necessary to get a law. Utility commissioners have the authority right now to move forward. There's no utility in the commission in the United States that cannot actually initiate this action. And I think it's important for us to encourage communities to be in open dialogue with those public officials because it's actually a big diversion of time and energy to have to go through your state legislature as if your utility commission isn't listening or can't be responsive. And I think that that's a misunderstanding. Most utility commissions just haven't heard enough from their community members about exactly what they want to be able to adapt that as part of their next cycle of decisions. I'll say one thing to that and then jump to Virginia. We are on a ticking clock, right? Like we don't have 40, 50 years to get this right. And so for me, one of the big things is why try to recreate the wheel in every state, right? Take what's being put time, sweat and effort into and use it as some guidance uh, for your own. If, if, if that it has to be the way for uh, these kind of policies to come forth. Ideally, as Holmes mentioned, you know, we, we <laughs> Being told to do something, being forced to do something is not the ideal situation, but sometimes that's how it's gonna have to um, happen. Uh, in Virginia, there was um, a bill that was passed, bipartisan bill that was passed. It essentially allows for rural electric cooperatives in the state of Virginia to accelerate the implementation of inclusive utility investment type program as long as there's a stakeholder engagement process. We've been engaging with Virginia because, uh, and, and Rappahannock Electric is the one starting um, this process as for the rural electric cooperatives in Virginia. And to their credit, right, they did a stakeholder engagement. They heard back from the stakeholders that it wasn't sufficient and they created and uh, they added to that, right? So there you see this given um, back and forth between utility and, the, and, and their stakeholders around what they feel they need, what they're trying to articulate, which is really powerful to see um, kind of the call call and response of, hey, we hear you that you weren't happy with just with these three stakeholder meetings. We're having another one and taking into account what you suggested, et cetera. So I think Virginia is a good place to see cooperation and coordination between the community and the utility um, that others can emulate. You're listening to the Rise Up Midwest podcast. We'll get back to the podcast after the short sponsor break. Want to increase sales on every project? 
now offer homeowners best-in-class solar and battery storage in one high-powered bundle, all from one company you know you can trust. Panasonic's new Evervolt series solar panels are available in up to 380-watt models and work with their Evervolt battery storage to deliver the total home energy system. Plus, back your work with a complete 25-year solar warranty guaranteed by one of America's most trusted brands, Panasonic. And now, back to the podcast. So, the work is with people. People are famously unreliable. <laughs> and uh, and homes, I think, you know, your your journey is a bit analogous, right? You've been... For the last 20 years, you've occupied uh, some of the highest offices in the country with your best ideas, and you've been in a conference room in a hotel with me with a few rural electric co-op executives. You've been you've been all over the place and had many conversations and had many ideas, and and here we are talking about one specific, relatively hopefully revolutionary concept which is this tariffed on-bill recovery. And all of the mountains you've climbed and all the valleys you've been in until there, here we are, right? You, you, you're, you're, you're here. And, and I think that's an analogy for when you both, you and Anthony are there talking to someone who has that decision-making authority, really helping them push a program like this forward They've had their own journey. They're coming from their own space. They they have, like you said, homes. They're part of the the framework that's made them this calcified, capital-intensive, heavily regulated utility environment. So I guess my lead up here, building kind of off of um, what Anthony was discussing about this required stakeholder engagement process in Virginia and, and how that can help change minds, can you just give us some... I guess some guidance or some thoughts on your approach to stakeholder engagement. What is this, what is in this new paradigm with, like I said, we're at this inflection point, there's this huge opportunity. Help us understand how to work with these often unreliable people that are often getting in the way. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that uh, people are as unreliable as perhaps lacking confidence in fact, a lot of the work that we do is around sharing experiences across landscapes that are beyond the horizons or boundaries where people have experience in their own local context in order to gain confidence from learning about the experiences of other people. And as a result, Clean Energy Works as an organization is a student of the field. We are followers of people who are moving us forward. I want to be clear in crediting organizations like NAACP, which issued the landmark report, Lights Out in the Cold, about their concern about disconnection for non-payment. And if you read that report and you flip to the solutions section, because after decrying their conditions, the NAACP said, look, we want to maximize the public spending that's available. And by the way, we are aware that that will not be enough that there has never been enough public spending to meet the level of public need. And that is why we are recommending an inclusive solution for financing site-specific investments on expansively inclusive terms. NAACP did that years ago, but in the past year, Gulf South Communities for a Green New Deal and the Southern Communities for a Green New Deal supported with the Southeast Climate and Energy Network, they reviewed their options and also came to make a similar recommendation. 
We've seen recommendations uh, like this come out of networks, including the REAMP network, which after having a summit on energy as a human right, formed an action team on inclusive financing covering five states in the REAMP service area. REAMP is an acronym, as many in the Midwest may already know, for its work on clean energy and climate action. But Clean Energy Works as a nonprofit, we're not leading the Midwest NGOs in that direction, but following them with the support that they need to go on the journey that's already pointed in the direction of a clean energy future that's open and equitable for all. I think that we would speak to the community-based organizations with a message of being curious and raising their confidence with information they can gain through peer networks that are now stitched coast to coast from New Hampshire all the way out to Hawaii and California to Georgia. We can make introductions and share information in a way that it's faster for all of us to get to a place where we can achieve the aims both locally and globally that we know are needed. I think uh, among so many things that I will take away from this conversation, I have two very specific ones. One, um, people aren't reliable, they're lacking confidence. And two, I will henceforth be referring to myself as a European American. Um, I really like that. So thank you for saying that, Anthony. Um, uh, but I wanted to give you guys the opportunity to to mention anything that, that you did want to that we perhaps didn't touch on here. And then also make sure to provide uh, our audience with where they can go to learn more about the work that you're all doing, um, pay as you save, uh, to get more resources, stay engaged in, and anything else? Yeah, I'll, I'll go and then pass it off to Holmes to close us out. First, I have to credit my Aunt Bell for uh, that, that clever uh, response of European-American and African-American, right? But I think the big thing that we didn't touch on a lot today, but I think is critically important in kind of uh, was implied in a lot of what we were saying is that getting the policy is just the first step. The deployment is the second step. And oftentimes, great policy gets derailed in the deployment process. I like to describe it as a film of racism that coats everything, that if we don't <laughs> design for that, that we don't design for the inherent biases that people have in America, that when we try and deploy it, we'll still have inequity, right? That even though something like pay as you save allows access for everyone, that doesn't mean everyone will have access to it. And so I just wanna bring that up, but that's, you know, that would be a whole nother uh, time to do that. But, and it's one of the things we teach about um, in the course, Racial Equity and Energy at Stanford that Holmes helped co-create with me is, is kind of the implementation. How do you design in, in a space that has challenges uh, like America does in our biases. It's been wonderful to visit with you both as hosts of a podcast that we know reach people who are action oriented and already deeply aware of both the scale of the challenges that we face and the speed with which we need to act at scale. And working with Anthony and all of the members of our team every day is deeply inspiring because we're connected to communities that are already engaged in the quest, the quest for an inclusive clean energy economy. And they are finding that the financial services sector has limited tools for being able to reach only certain parts of the population with certain types of solutions. And that everyone everywhere who has a light bulb switch and a bill that comes with it 
has the opportunity to be in conversation about something that is already operating at a billion dollar scale within the context of their local economy and everyone is already in. And adapting that mechanism to assure that there's not a single person who's left with a fossil fuel heat source when they could have a heat pump or doesn't have rooftop solar when the grid goes down and there's a polar vortex. We need on-site renewable energy, high efficiency and all electric homes everywhere in order to have a safe, just transition. And people who aren't thinking about solutions that include everyone will find that we'll continue to face a torn base of support in the larger landscapes, both rural and urban that are necessary. It's not possible to imagine reaching 2035, 45, or 50 with goals like we know are consistent with a minimal level of climate impact compared to what we know could be the worst if we don't have answers for how everyone's going to participate. So I hope that this podcast has been inspiring and exciting for those that are listening to the Midwest Renewable Energy Association's work and thinking about how it can be made real right where you are within the power and authority that you have to be in touch with people that you know can take action. Holmes, Anthony, thanks for all your great work. Thanks for spending time with us. And uh, thanks for all the stuff you're about to do uh, with us and uh, and our listeners. Um, thank you so much. Yes, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This Rise Up podcast was hosted by Nick Hyla and Amanda Schenebeck. Editing and sponsor copy read by Matthew Brown. Led by the Midwest Renewable Energy Association, Rise Up Midwest is a coalition of individuals, businesses, and organizations working to build support for common sense clean energy policy and market development. For past episodes and to sign up for new episode alerts, visit riseupmidwest.org. The Rise Up podcast is provided for educational purposes. Views expressed by guests and MREA employees are their own and do not imply endorsement by the Rise Up Midwest Coalition or the MREA. 